So, I am very sure that all of you are aware that on October the 7th of this year, Hamas killed over 100,000 Israeli civilians in what is considered the most or the worst terrorist attack, attack in the last 75 years on Israel's soil. Israel's retaliated with the goal to completely eliminate Hamas as a terrorist group and any future threats. Understand, Hamas does not speak for Palestinians. They may speak for some, but they do not speak for all of them. They probably don't even speak for the majority. I know many Palestinians truly want to live with Israel equitably and in harmony, and the Hamas is strictly a terrorist organization. The question that I want, questions that I want to ask tonight is, is this war a precursor to the end times? And that's a question that some of you have asked, maybe many of you asked. Should we be afraid? Should we support Israel now and in the future? Are they the chosen people of God? Does the land of Israel belong to Israel? And if so, Why? These questions, uh, they're, they're very theological in nature, and I'm aware of this, and I am also aware that I'm going to be going through a number of Scripture passages, and if I'm not careful, I, I need to just make sure I slow down, because if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose us. I want us to search through the Scriptures, but above this church, I want us to see the heart of the Father for Israel, not just in the Old Testament, the heart of the Father for Israel today. Now, some of you have no clue where I stand on this issue. You'll find out by the end of the message. I just would ask, as I go through these passages, don't say, oh, he comes from that, or he comes from... Just hear me out as, we, as I walk through these scriptures, because this is controversial in the church today, and it creates a lot of not just discussion, but heated discussion, okay? So I'm just going to ask, if you could set your preconceived conclusions or where you come out on on this issue give me your ear allow me to walk you through scriptures and pray for me that I'm able to display and bring an exhortation from the heart of God okay so I'm going to bring the board over We're going to walk through some passages of scripture the first one I want to turn to is in Hebrews 8 Hebrews 8, as you're turning there, I just, I want you to recognize that I'm only bringing partial answers to these questions and a few others. Um, My real heart in this is not just that we discover a truth, but that we hear the heart of the Father. And I'm going to offer a solution. It is, it's going to have a ring of political to it, but that is not my focus at all. My focus is, what is the heart of the Father for Israel? Because whatever God's heart is for the Jew today should be our heart, church. It should be our heart. I want to avoid two extremes in Christendom today. I want to be able to navigate between these two extremes. Number one is the belief that the Jews are today God's chosen people, and we should support their every effort to gain control over all Israel unquestioningly. This is commonly called Christian Zionism. That is an extreme. I do not hold to that view. I do not believe God's word teaches that view. On the other extreme, generally embraced by those who fully embrace replacement theology, is the view that the Jews are not God's chosen people and therefore they have no right to the land anymore. I do not hold to that view. Though I lean in the view, and you'll see it, I lean towards replacement theology, I do believe they go too far, especially when they come to the New Testament with regard to Israel. When it comes to Israel and the Gentiles, I see Scripture teaching them or treating them separately in the New Testament. You'll see this as we walk through this. But these are two extremes in our day. And within those extremes, believe it or not, there are extremes. And so as we go through this, let's let's do our best. I'm going to share with you my understanding of these, okay? And I'm just going to do the best job that I can today. 
But if you disagree with me, can you please try very hard to hear the heart of the Father that I hope I can display? All right. Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read these verses for you. I'm not going to read all of it. It is a quote from Jeremiah 31 speaking about the new covenant that God would soon cut with, the word says, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now hear me out. Hebrews 8, starting with verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. See, not with the covenant, but with the people. Because they were sinners. I'm sorry, I'm adding that. My text actually doesn't say that. But that was, what, that was the problem with the people. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Church, who is this new covenant going to be made with? Number one, the house of Israel. And number two, the house of Judah. You're following, right? He goes on, and it will be like the covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. That covenant focus was on law. It's not that we do away with law. It's just that the focus is now going to be God dwelling in us and empowering us to do the law. That is the moral law. When I took them by the hand, I led them out of Egypt. What a beautiful picture of redemption. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the, the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, the question is, author of Hebrews, hang on a second. This new covenant is with anyone. It is not just with the house of Israel or the house of Judah, but that is what you say here. It is for them. The challenge then is, how does the author of Hebrews treat this? He begins to unveil what this passage is about through chapter, through the rest of chapter 8, all through chapter 9 and into chapter 10. And in chapter 10, he quotes it again. And who is he speaking to? Who is this new covenant going to be made for? Is it truly the house of Israel and the house of Judah? See, it's not. It is through, listen to this in verse 14, because by one sacrifice, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Backing up to verse 10, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This new covenant is given by Jeremiah to the house of Israel and to house of Judah and those indeed are the words. But as we move into the new covenant, who is it for? It is for Jews and Gentiles. So I, I need us to understand with, with regard to replacement theology, I get what they're trying to say. There is much, especially in Isaiah, but of course here, Jeremiah 31, promises that are given to Israel. And when you track them into the new covenant, lo and behold, it's not just for Israel, it's for anyone who believes in Jesus. This is key. So many promises given to this idea of Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And when we move into the new covenant, we see that, there is, they, that they are symbols. And the fulfillment of this is a heavenly Jerusalem. I would refer to Galatians chapter 4. Write that down if you want to do more research. Galatians 4. He's not talking about a literal city. He's talking about a spiritual city, the seed of Abraham, who aren't just Jews, but Gentiles as well. This is who the new covenant is for. And so, the second thing I want us to see is nowhere in the New Testament, and I'm going to throw this out there. You can do your homework. Be good Bereans. Search the scriptures. But nowhere in the New Testament are Jews addressed as the people of God. Did you, did you realize this? Nowhere. In the whole New Testament, after the cross and resurrection, are Jews ever called the people of God and never called the chosen people of God? As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I'm just going to stop right there. Because people, some people have assumed that this was given to the diaspora. The diaspora were those, after Assyrian and Babylonian conquest, reached in, grabbed tens of thousands of Jews from the northern and southern kingdom, brought them into their land, planted their, many of the people from their kingdom in Israel, kind of did a switcheroo here. This is where we get the Samaritans, by the way. They interbreeded with these people. But those that were scattered during the time of Jesus were called the diaspora. This is actually the word that's used here for scattered, but it has no definite article. It's just scattered. And that would be a common term within the Greeks. So I I do disagree with that view that says that this is written to the diaspora. See, it's not. And as we go through Peter, 1 Peter, we realize that it's not. I'm going to get to a verse in just a moment. And so this entire book is given to Christians. It started in the synagogues and reached Gentiles from there. This gospel is spreading throughout the world. Christians are scattered all over. They're enduring persecution. And Peter is now writing to them concerning that suffering. So if you were to turn to chapter 2, we're going to see something interesting here. Actually, it's some Old Testament wording from Exodus 19. When, when God is on top of Mount Sinai and he is about to give the law in the very next chapter, Exodus chapter 20. But here's, here's the verse, two verses actually. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, just Jews? No, Christians, Gentiles and Jews, believers in Jesus, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You're familiar with the term a a peculiar people. That's this here. These phrases were given to Israel. They are now being given to the church, the people of God, believers in Jesus that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. This is how we know he's not just talking to Jews because the Jews were his people. But he's saying, see, you weren't a people. Gentiles, you weren't a people. You weren't God's special possession, but now you are. Why? Because you are living stones. You are believers in Jesus Christ. Let me read again. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Exodus 2 speaks about this in more detail. Write that down. Research. Read through that. And please, wrestle with Scripture in this topic, okay? I'm not suggesting it's an easy one. It's not. So as we were to look up at this chart right here, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, you have election, God's choosing. And it occurs as you read through Romans 9 in particular, Romans 9, you will discover that God's election, his choosing of Israel, actually occurs on two different levels. It's for the entire nation. You are my people. You're my chosen people. But are all Israel Israel? That's what Romans 9 asks. Paul's asking this question. See, they're not, he says. Why? Because not all are individually elected. And what we get from this is that God had called an entire nation to be his people, but only some actually, truly entered into that covenant. The others were circumcised, and by that they entered the covenant. God did bless all of Israel, but many of them were not truly Israel. Many of them were not truly following after God. They were what Isaiah in particular calls the remnant. I spoke about this last week concerning the remnant, the holy seed. But here we have national election, all of the nation, but not all of them are saved. Not all of them are in true covenant relationship with God. Then individual election. As we move into the New Testament, 
There is no national election, none, nowhere that you read of. There is individual election, Romans 9. I just don't have time to go through that tonight, but check that out, write that down and study that. If this is the case, then national Israel would no longer be called the chosen people of God. And again, I'm just going to suggest, go through the whole New Testament and ask that question, are they ever called the chosen people of God or just the people of God? Never, not one time. And this is important, church, for, for people to be, individual election, for people to be the children or the people of God, they must be believers in Jesus. First John chapter 2. It says in First John chapter 2, that if you do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you reject Jesus, then you also reject the Father. If you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God. But there's more to it than just that, that Israel has rejected God. In rejecting the Messiah, they have indeed rejected God. I, I was just thinking through an, an analogy because um, Muslims truly believe that Allah is God. The problem that I have with that is very simply when the Quran describes God, that is not the God that I read about in my Bible. See, when the Jew describes God, except when they come to Jesus, yes, because it does come from the Bible. The Muslims, when, when, when they say they truly believe in the one God, let me use this analogy. They're wandering around in left field on that one. They truly are. Israel is at least, at least hovering around third base. But the Muslims are in left field. Hindus are in the grandstands. And Buddhists, who are technically atheists, are not even in the ballpark. So, that doesn't mean that any of that. That doesn't mean that none of them can come to home plate, can be there. That's where you score. That's where you make the run, right? No, see, God can truly rescue any of them, any of them. Matthew 21, 43. Matthew 21, 43. Jesus gives them a parable. I don't have time to unwrap the parable or even read it, but I will say this. It is about Jesus leaving and he is going to be crowned king. And when he comes back, the people are to give an account. And instead, they want to kill him. And Jesus says this in view of this parable, verse 43 he says this, therefore I tell you, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews. He's not speaking to Gentiles, he's speaking to Jews. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God was proclaimed. Read Daniel 2. That is about the mountain, the, the rock that's carved out of the mountain that, that destroys the image that was in Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It lands at his feet. The whole image is destroyed. And that rock becomes the largest mountain in the world. And it fills the whole earth. And later we, re we read in chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, that that's the kingdom of God. So this idea of the kingdom of God is not new. It's interesting. This happens, by the way, to be one of the few places where kingdom of God is used instead of kingdom of heaven. Not that that's a big deal. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, an ethnos, who will produce its fruit. Because in the parable, the people entrusted with the vineyard did not. They conspired against the owner, the master. And so, we, we need to recognize, church, that the Jews were preached the gospel. When they heard it, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's like a veil was over their eyes. Every time they would read the Old Covenant, a veil was over there, and they could not see Jesus, and they rejected him as the Messiah. As hard as Paul and others proclaimed the gospel, proving to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, they still rejected it. Why? Because a veil, a hardness of the heart, couldn't see with their eyes, couldn't hear with their ears, 
Isaiah 6, remember that's what we preached on last week. And as a result, they couldn't understand the gospel and they rejected Jesus. The kingdom was taken away from them and it is now given to a people who will believe in Jesus. The promised Messiah who was, is Jewish. And so, we see here then that the kingdom no longer belongs to them. Now, turn with me now also to Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, this speaks about many things, but here in the passage I'm going to read to you, it speaks about an olive tree. And this olive tree is a natural olive tree, and Israel are, is, is viewed as branches that are broken off. They're broken off and new branches that aren't natural are grafted in. Israel, because they rejected Jesus, the kingdom was taken from them. They were broken off. They're no longer connected. They're no longer a part of God's kingdom. But who is? Those who stand by faith in Jesus Christ, are grafted in. So let me read the verse to you, 19 to 21. And he's speaking to Gentiles here because it's written to Romans. For the most part, they're Gentiles. You will say then, branches were broken off that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid for if God did not spare the natural branches, which would be Jews, he will not spare you either. Mm, so much to that, I can't uh, get into it except, except simply to say, church, do you see it? Israel was taken out. Those who believed in Jesus are grafted in. In essence, the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. Now, there's more to this. There's a caveat that's super important. But according to this passage, Israel is no longer God's people. It's no longer his chosen people. Those who believe in Jesus are. When we went through John, the children of God, who is that? John 1, 12, and 13, is it those who are born, born of men, born of the will of man, born of the flesh? John asks, no, it is those who are what? Do you remember those who are born of God? That's who the children of God are. They're born of God. It's spiritual, it's not physical. And so this family that we're a part of, being the children of God, being the family of God, being the people of God, is not something that is physically inherited. It is something that is spiritual and is profound and it must change us to the very core, church. Because if we are not changed to the very core, then that must mean we have no life in us. And Isaiah, speaking to Israel, said, you're like dead men's bones. And he saw a valley of dry bones. And in that vision, Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel was told by God, prophesy to them and that my breath would come in them. That breath, ruach, means, means breath. It can also mean spirit. And later, with that nuance, he says, in essence, in the new covenant, my spirit will be in them and they will come to life. How? By faith, church. By faith. We are the people of God. Verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief, referring to Jews, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. It is all about faith. It is all about faith. Psalm 122, verses 1 through 9. You've heard us say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I am not going to disagree with that. But if we look at this, could we please understand why? There are four reasons why we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What we're going to need to do is we're going to need to take this psalm and then move it into the new covenant and what remains. Okay, in other words, what is fulfilled in Christ 
and what remains then for the Jews, just as Jews. Now listen, Psalm 122, this is one of the Psalms of Ascent. Do you know what that means? It means that when people would come to a, a festival, a Jewish festival, like the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would gather as a group, and as a group, they would then ascend Mount Zion into Jerusalem, heading for the Temple Mount. That's where they were going. They would either recite or sing one or many of these songs of ascent. That's why in John 7, they asked Jesus, are you going up to Jerusalem? In other words, are you going to be one of those pilgrims that's going to go up to Jerusalem? And Jesus says, no, because he was going probably the next day. He wasn't going to be joining the groups at the bottom of the mountain and then climbing up. He wasn't going to do that. It's not, he, did, he wasn't saying that he wasn't going to go to the feast at all. He was just not going to go up. All right, so here it is. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. In praise, excuse me, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I want you to just underline that, highlight it. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you, excuse me, may those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. This word peace, shalom, means more than just like peace, tranquility, no arguments with your neighbors type of thing. It is prosperity. It is this idea of well-being. It is well with my soul. This is this idea of shalom is bigger than just our word for peace. It includes so much more. Peace of mind, peace in our spirit, peace in our world as we are prospering and doing what God's called us to do. Four reasons why we are to pray for the peace, the shalom of Israel. Number one, because that's where the temple of God is. Verse one and verse nine, do you see that? That's where the temple of God is. So I'm going to, for this reason, he says in verse nine, Because God's temple is there. And where does God dwell, church? He dwells in the temple and very specifically in the Holy of Holies. That's where God dwelt. Here's my question. Is that where God lives today? See, he doesn't. So I think we're going to have to strike that as a reason for why we would pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Number two. Number two, the tribes of the Lord make pilgrimage there. This is why we do it. But there are no tribes of the Lord. There may be tribes of Israel, but they certainly would not be of the Lord. They don't believe in Jesus. They are not of the Lord. And so because of this, I think we can say number, the number two reason that we, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem because that's where the tribes of Israel go to praise God. That, that's not where I go to praise God. I, as a matter of fact, there's no temple there. Number three, it says there in verse five, it says that's where the thrones of judgment are and very specifically the thrones of the house of David. That's where rulership, kingship was. See, Jerusalem was the hub of Israel. It was the capital. It was chosen by God and consequently, that's where the king sat and that's where the kings rendered judgment. Is that what happens today? See, that was fulfilled in Christ. Who is that king of the line of David, church? It's Jesus. Where does he sit? Does he sit in Jerusalem? No. Guess what? He sits at the right hand of God Almighty in heaven. That's where he sits. That's where the throne of God is. Right there. That's where Jesus of the line of David, he's the Lion of Judah and Lamb of God, that's where he sits. And he renders judgment from there, but not in Jerusalem. 
So I think we can scratch that as a reason to pray for Jerusalem. Now follow me here. Some of you are probably pretty ticked at me. Oh my goodness, Mike, how can you say don't pray for the peace of... See, I didn't say that. Look at this last one, and it says it's for... He says, for the sake, verse 8, for the sake of my brothers and friends, who would be Jews. That's why he prays for Jerusalem. It is for the sake of his fellow Jews. Are you aware in Romans 9? And this just blows me away. Paul's heart for the Jews. Now, he was Jewish, and so I get that. But he says that he would rather that Israel be saved and his own soul accursed. Wow. Paul, are you... Wait a second, do you really get what you're saying? You would rather spend eternity in hell and the, and the Jews be saved than the other way around. Church, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I can pray that. He had such a heart for Israel. I can tell you right now, he prayed for the peace of Jerusalem. So, do we just pray for Jerusalem? Are we supposed to pray for Jerusalem more than any other world city? What should our view of the Jews be? Shouldn't our view of the Jews be the same as God's view? And if it is, and I would say yes, then what is that view? We're getting just a little bit of a picture in Paul's heart. But before I address that, I need to say this, because this has to do with the land, and then I'm going to kind of bring some of this stuff together. Should Israel have the land because it is part of God's eternal covenant of the promised land? So God made a covenant. He called it an eternal covenant, and he gave them, this is your land. It's part of an eternal covenant. So because of that promise, should we then say that that's Israel's land, and it is theirs, and everyone else get off. Listen to me now. Are you aware of what that promise really entailed? The promise God gave to Israel, that land extended all the way up to the Euphrates. Check it out, Joshua chapter 1. It extended all the way to the Euphrates River. That, that, would, that land up there in what's present-day Syria... That was, to be that was to belong to Israel. And under King David, it did. But as you go through the book of Joshua, remember Joshua chapter 1 is where he promises this land extending all the way to the Euphrates. When he divides up the land later in the book to all the 12 tribes, no one lives in that land. There is a difference between the land promised and what is actually allotted to Israel. I don't want to confuse you here, okay? I just need us to see that distinction because it is significant. The land all the way up to the Euphrates was a promise, but they were not given that land like they were what's commonly called the promised land. So I don't want to say that, hey, God promised that land to Israel, so it's theirs. The promise is different than what's actually allotted. And if you don't know what's allotted to them, most Bibles have a map in the back of their Bibles. Check out that map. Let's understand, there are, there are many eternal covenants in the Old Testament. Many eternal covenants. Did you realize that circumcision was an eternal covenant given to Israel? Did you realize that the Sabbath was an eternal covenant God made with Israel? Are you aware that the Levitical priesthood was given to them as an eternal covenant? Are you aware that rulership through a king, a king of, through David, would be in part of an eternal covenant made. Same with the land. Very quickly. Circumcision. There is no circumcision in the church. It is only circumcision of the heart. Physical circumcision was done away with and the spiritual aspects remained. 
even though that covenant is eternal, it changed at the cross. What else changed? The Sabbath. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. The body is in Christ. The body casts the shadow. The Sabbath was a shadow. It was a picture, a rough outline, a silhouette, if you will. Your body casts a shadow, see? But these were pictures of what would eventually be fulfilled in Christ. Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. Much more could be said about that, but I'm just going to leave it at that. It changed. It's an eternal covenant, but it changed at the cross. Our rest in Christ is what it was all about. It was a picture of that rest in Christ. Hebrews 4, if you want to write that down and look at it more. Levitical priesthood. Hebrews, again, Christ is the high priest. He fulfilled the priesthood. So that now, church, we are the priests in the new covenant. We're the pre- it's the priesthood of all believers. This was like a dividing line in the Reformation. Because the Roman Catholic Church would only priests could read the Bible and interpret it. The people couldn't. And Martin Luther said, no, I'm going to write it in German. I'm going to get the scriptures out to the common person. And they were appalled at that. Only priests. And he said, no, no, no. See, we now have the Holy Spirit upon us. We can understand the word. The priesthood of all believers. God in me. So significant. The, the Levitical priesthood was done away with. Christ fulfilled that rulership. Again, in Christ, no more physical thing, no more physical rulers, but in Christ, who is the ultimate ruler. All of this, all of these changed at the cross, even though they're eternal covenants. May I suggest to you that the land promise changed at the cross, okay? And we, again, we read about this in, Rome, in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, I want, us, I want us to realize, though, when we ask this question, does the land belong to Israel? So there is a promise, an eternal covenant that changed at the cross. But church, listen to me. God gave them the land, and they have lived there for 3,500 years. The Palestinians have not. They have been conquered. They have been fought against. They have been killed, Jews, I mean. And they have remained in the land so that Jews and Christians and, and Arabs, all three of those people groups for the most part, occupy Israel. Well, who does it belong to? Well, Israel's been there from day one, okay? No other people group, but Israel has. It belongs to Israel. Now, much more could be said about that. So I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. I want us, though, now to answer this question What is God's heart? What is his view? Because, see, I do believe that a fair conclusion is that governance by Israel fairly with Jews, Arabs, and Christians can be done amicably. There's a problem, though, church. The problem is that this proposal is difficult when one people group regularly entertains the goal of completely exterminating Israel. You can't live with that. That must change. It has to. So what is God's heart? And I need to wrap this up. I'm already beyond time. But church, please bear with me. I am going to go a few minutes over. In all fairness, I had to start a little bit later, but can you turn with me to Romans 11? And we're just going to camp out there for a few minutes. Romans 11, verses 28 and 29. Hear God's word. Hear God's heart for Israel. 28 and 29. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, that is the Jews, are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For listen, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Now, I'm not suggesting that Paul is somehow changing what he is trying to be be teaching about who the people of God are, and now he's trying to call Israel the people of God. That's not what he's trying to say. Hear me out. He is saying that Israel, 
they have been, they're branches that are broken off. They're no longer integrally connected with the vine. The kingdom of God does not belong to that. This is true. They're enemies when it comes to the gospel. But in the old covenant concerning national election in which God took the patriarchs and he said, through you I am going to form a nation unto myself. Because of that Old Testament prophecy, because of that, God has chosen to love the Jews. He could say, you know what? God loves the Serbs. God loves the Australians. God loves the Chinese. I don't doubt that for a second. But he makes a very particular point here that he loves the Jews. He doesn't point out any other people group. Why? Earlier he talks about how they are not part of the the elect, but the remnant, a small portion of Israel that chose to believe in Jesus are. So what about them? What about all of Israel? God, why would you not give up? on such a stubborn people. And I don't render judgment upon them. Church, I was stubborn. You were stubborn before you came to Christ, if you're humble enough to admit it. Come on now. Sure you were. The Jews today, a veil over their eyes. They cannot understand the old covenant. And when they look at it, they don't see Jesus. And he's there everywhere, church, everywhere but their eyes are blinded, their ears are closed, their hearts are calloused. But God loves them. Why? Look at verse 25, the last portion. Brothers, so that you may, excuse me, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness, I don't agree with that number, that phrase full number but anyway fullness of the gentiles has come in and so all israel will be saved see this is the heart of god he has not given up on israel i'm not suggesting that he's calling them his chosen people not yet not until they repent and turn to jesus but see the heart of the father is to pursue Maybe some of you tonight, you're you're wrestling with God. He is pursuing you. I'm telling you that right now. You may have made a choice. I'm just going to do it my way. I'm so tired of God having it his way. Look what, I mean, it just seems like God has ruined my life. Everywhere, every time I make this decision, man, it just, God must be against me. And our hearts can be hardened. We're frustrated, even angry with God. He has not given up on you. He is pursuing you. Are you aware, church, that the parable of the lost son was given to Jews? The Jews, they were the lost son. I'm not saying it doesn't apply to us Gentiles, but see, that's why it starts off with him having an inheritance. Doesn't, it, it, it ends that way, yes, but he starts off with the inheritance, just like the Jews. And he squandered that inheritance. He lost it. The kingdom of God was taken from him. I'm now moving into the New Testament terminology. And, but what happened with this lost son? See, this is the heart of the father. The lost son, through his own just deceit, he squandered it, and yet he came to his senses. Last week, we talked about redemptive judgment, that God brings judgment upon people. Why? To win them. Why on earth was Israel conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Greeks, by the Romans? And six million died in the Holocaust. God is trying to woo and win their heart. Come to me. I am not giving you up on you. We call this redemptive judgment. This has happened to entire nations. I walked you through some of that last week. God has a heart to win us. And he will, if he needs to, use a strong rod of discipline. Isaiah speaks about this. He will use the strong rod of Assyria. But guess what I'm going to do to Assyria? Oh, you wait and see. And they're not off the hook. But I need to discipline you, Israel. I'm going to use Israel as my rod to do it. No, don't get me wrong. It was Hitler that killed those Jews, not God. But God in his sovereignty... Because, church, he, because he loves the Jews. 
allowed them to go century after century trying to call them to himself. Church, if you are wandering, please do not think that you're in the clear. God is pursuing you, and if he needs to put obstacles to trip you up, he will do it, even to the point where you fall on your face, you're hurt, you're broken, until you come back to Jesus. That is the heart of a father that pursues his child. And so what happens with this lost son? He comes to his senses. He's been groveling in mud and mire and feeding the pigs, even wanting to eat the pig swill. Redemptive judgment. And he comes to his senses, oh my goodness, I need to go back to the father. And when he does, the father sees him a long way off and makes his way towards him and throws his arms around him and kisses him and gives him a ring. See, that is the Jew then that's coming. It's generally, it's anyone who comes to Christ. But the audience initially was the Jew, the lost sinner who is a Jew. That is the heart of the Father. Just be careful. As a Gentile believing in Jesus, you are not like the older brother. I'm just going to leave it at that. I want us to just look at this one last thing. And I'm only going to mention it. I don't have time to really get into it. And that is this in Revelation 12. The woman of Revelation 12 is Israel, the community of Israel. The red dragon, the serpent is pursuing her, trying to destroy Israel. Is that not true throughout the centuries? Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman, sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Isaiah 54, the descendants of the barren woman are nothing other than those who believe in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles. That is what he is referring to here. And of course there is war that the beast makes with the people of God, the believers in Jesus, who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And when Paul then says, oh, the reason, see, here is the redemptive plan of God. Here it is. See, Gentiles, many of them, coming to Christ, Jews becoming jealous, stirred up. How can this be, if anything, becoming even more blind, but coming to a point at the end of their rope, if you will, in which he finally says, and when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, not like the last Gentile to get saved, but there is this fullness in the, amongst the Gentiles of people coming to Christ that God will then reach in a second time to pull his people out of slavery. Isaiah 11, and he will reclaim them. And it says here, and all Israel will be saved. Does all mean every single one of them? That's actually sometimes used in the New Testament, but by no means all the time. Does all mean many or most? When Herod heard the word from the Magi that they, were, he, they came to worship the king, it says Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Does that mean the two-year-old infants were very disturbed? Did they awake at night wondering, oh my goodness, they came to worship Jesus? Of course they didn't. Probably not even five-year-olds. So the word all doesn't mean every single one. Maybe the majority. Maybe a lot. Maybe talk about it was proliferated throughout Jerusalem but it doesn't mean every single one. Lastly, all kinds. Well, Jews are a kind, so it can't mean that. I'm sorry, I'm really cutting to the chase here. I'm gonna suggest this middle one. Regardless of where we come out on this, God has a plan for Israel. He is moving them towards something that is fabulous. Church, we are going to experience a global awakening. There's no less than two dozen verses in Old and New Testament that speak of this. Jesus' rulership from, from sea to sea and from the great Euphrates to the ends of the earth. The, the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth even as the waters cover the seas. There's 22 others that we could look at, but you know what, church? There is a global global awakening before the coming of Christ. I'm praying it will be in our generation, but Israel will be a part of this. Israel has not, God has not given up on Israel. They are not the people of God, but God is drawing them to him. He's making them jealous. I, 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 need, to, I need to wrap this up. I'm sorry, I'm going over. 
I'm just going to conclude with this. Please do not be alarmed when you hear about the bombings. Pray for them, yes. Innocent civilians are being killed left and right. Hospital that blows up and they blame Israel for it. And yeah, they check the footage and yeah, it was the Hamas all along. But they're terrorists, so they do this. And injustice is being perpetrated against Israel. I want to defend the child that is being bullied by that overgrown bully in elementary school. I will protect my child. But I'm going to do it in a just way. I'm not going to allow my child to walk up and hit that bully and run back and hide under my apron if I had an apron. But I would not let the bully attack my child either. And so God is going to protect Israel. And when there are bombings and such, please don't think, oh my goodness, the end times are upon us. Guess what? If the end times are upon us, then where's this global awakening? That will happen, church. It will Where's all Israel being saved? It will happen, church. It will. There's no need for us to fear what's going on. There is great need, though, for us to pray in boldness and in faith. Now, I'm just going to conclude with this. God's heart for Israel is like the Father's heart for the lost son. He will pursue. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're straying, he will pursue you relentlessly he will pursue you. Listen to him. Listen to his heartbeat. Listen to the words of love. It's throughout his letters in the New Testament, everywhere, even in the old, bringing challenges. Come back to me. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm way overdue. I want you to please allow God right now to search your heart. Do you truly understand the love of the Father? Lord, I I just ask you, God, that you would please speak to our hearts. God, if we're wrestling with you, give us another glimpse of the Father heart of God. You called us out of darkness into your marvelous light to proclaim your praises. Let Let those praises fill our heart, God. If we're straying, run back to you. Pursue us, God. Pursue us with your love. Never stop. Run, charge, throw your arms around me and kiss me, God, but show me your love. Wow, how deep is the love the Father has for us. God, you're so good. Just take these words, God, seal them in our hearts as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem because your heart is for the Jews. And I just ask you, Lord, May that time of global awakening and such an amazing turn of the Jewish population to Jesus, may we be privileged to see that with our own eyes, God, as we walk with you in Jesus' name.